are listening to the Forge Leadership Podcast. Forge Leadership Network mentors, trains, and connects young conservatives ages 18 to 25, equipping them to lead in politics, culture, and business. For more information or to get involved with Forge, visit forgeleadership.org. Thank you so much, Adam. It's a pleasure to be here with all of you. Uh, during this time of working from home, uh, both my wife and I were homeschooled. And so one of the things that uh, she said earlier today is that working from home is just reverting to factory settings. Uh, so uh, I'll give you a brief framework of what I'm gonna talk about with you guys tonight. Uh, we are living through history, but one thing about history is that it tends to repeat. And so there are a lot of lessons to be learned from our past, both uh, the public health response as well as the Constitution in times of public health crises and emergencies. Uh, a couple of uh, quick disclaimers I should mention. Uh, although I am a lawyer in Washington, D.C. and also a lawyer in Ohio, uh, I'm not giving you guys legal advice. There's no attorney-client relationship. This is educational only. And although uh, lawyers are good at studying up and learning complicated things quickly, I'm not a public health expert, I'm not a medical professional, uh, and I won't be really re talking about most of that kind of stuff. You, now you can really tell that I am a lawyer because I've given you all the fine print right up front. Uh, there was a case called Frush v. Ohio State Life Insurance Company. Uh, it was decided January 13th in 1920 by the Court of Common Pleas of Ohio in Licking County. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Walter Guy Frush was a soldier who was drafted in World War I, and he contracted an illness and died October 9th, 1918. His wife, Emma Laura Thrush, sued his life insurance company because they refused to pay out his $1,000 life insurance policy. The court held that the insurance policy uh, had a provision that voided the policy upon the beneficiary of the policy entering into military service. And the court said that this provision was not lawful for the Constitution, for the, the public policy aims that the state of Ohio uh, authorized insurance to, to go forward. And the reason they said, if you have a, a contract that says if you join the military, you can't get life insurance, no one will want to join the military. And the other thing that they said, we're, so we're going to constrain the life policy. We're going to re how we interpret this life insurance policy for the wife of the deceased soldier so that it's entering military service that voids the policy. It's dying because of your military service. And then they said, why did he die? Well, he died from something called the Spanish flu. And the court ruled, and I quote, as is well known, the civil life was just as great as in military service in respect to the disease called the flu. And therefore, the insurance company had to pay on the policy two years later. I th thought I'd start with that old case. It's, you know, almost 100 years old now, uh, over 100 years old now, because I think it shows the context of how the law deals with these crises. The court didn't need evidence. It was well known at the time that everybody knew someone from the flow. 1918, 500,000 Americans died and more than 20 million people died worldwide from the Spanish flu. That was one third 
third of the entire US population was infected. And interestingly, if you look at statistics for life expectancy over the 20th century, it's pretty much this continuous upward drift of a line in all countries. You get to 1918 and there is a 13 year drop in life expectancy in a single year because of the aggregate statistics of how many people died from Spanish flu in that year. So that historical background is I think what is on the mind of the people who are our public health officials at the federal and state level. So what I'm gonna to talk to you about tonight is a general basic sense of axiomatic about how our constitutional structure works and then how that constitutional structure interacts with the exigencies and emergency that, that uh, mass pandemics like the Spanish flu and arguably like what COVID-19, uh, the, the coronavirus, or as some of my friends have been calling it, the Rona, how that's going to affect the constitutional framework, and then what challenges under the constitutional framework might look like. The basic fundamental thing to know about the US constitutional framework is that we live in a system of dual sovereignty. The people are the sovereign, and the people's sovereignty is delegated not to a singular government, but it is delegated to two sovereign forms of government, the state government and the federal government. Oftentimes this is termed federalism, but I like the term dual sovereignty. It reinforces the notion that there are two centers of authority, one that is centered in states and the other that is centered in the federal government as established by the constitution uh, of, 19, of 18, uh, 1787. Now, what are the differences between state and federal power? Well, you've probably heard James Madison in The Federalists say the, the powers of the federal government few and defined. Uh, the Tenth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution explicitly makes clear that those powers which are not delegated to the federal government are reserved to the states or to the people, respectively. And that means that the government is a government of enumerated powers. So unless the powers are listed for the federal government, theoretically, the federal government lacks that power. Not so with state governments. The state government has the plenary or general power. State powers are oftentimes referred to as the police. There's a Latin phrase. I might butcher this Latin, so hold on here, bear with me. The, the phrase is salus populi suprema lex esto, and that translates rather, the welfare of the people shall be the supreme law. And what that means in the context of state laws has usually been termed the four heads of the police power. So the police power of the state government is divided into four basic origin points, like the heads of a river, if you think of that. So the, the origin of these power are the protection of the health, safety, moral, and welfare of the population. So if the state is making legislation or enforcing and executing legislation or laws and regulate serve the interests of the health, safety, morals, and general welfare of the population. It is presumptively within the power of a state government to do that. So the presumptions between the two sovereigns in American constitutional parlance 
are exactly opposite. The presumption with the federal government is that it does not have the power to act, but for an explicit delegation of that authority. With the state governments, the presumption is that it does have the power to act, provided that it is in service of one of the four heads of the police power. I think there's a, a case that was decided in 1905 the U.S. Supreme Court that illustrates, or maybe a quotation from it, demonstrates what is more or less police power. And this is one of those cases cited in briefs and cited Supreme Court and cited by district and federal appellate courts all the time. Uh, it's just one of these sort of basic cases. For the case of this, uh, a state, the state of Massachusetts, enacted a law that allowed public health commissions at the local level to decide on whether or not to promulgate regulations that penalize people who fail to get vaccines, who fail to get vaccines, the smallpox vaccine especially at that point. And Jacobson sued saying that this was unconstitutional and the case went all the way up to the US Supreme Court and this is how the Supreme Court ruled, I'll quote. The authority of the state to enact this mandatory vaccine statute is to be referred to what is commonly called the police power, a power which the state did not surrender when becoming a member of the union under the constitution. This court has distinctly recognized that the authority of a state to enact quarantine laws and health laws of every description, settled principles, the police power of a state must be held to embrace at least such reasonable rights established directly by the legislative enactment as will protect the public health and the public safety. It is equally true that the state may invest local bodies called for purposes of local administration with authority in some safeguard the public health safety. Skipping down, the court goes on to say, a local enactment or regulation, even if based on the acknowledged police powers of a state, must always yield in case of conflict with the constitution or with any right which that instrument gives or secures. So the constitution will trump state law if there is a conflict. We come then to inquire whether any right given or secured by the Constitution is invaded by the statute. The defendant insists that his liberty is invaded when the state subjects him to fine or imprisonment for neglecting or refusing to submit to vaccination, that a compulsory vaccination law is unreasonable, arbitrary, and oppressive, and therefore hostile to the inherent right of every freeman to care for his own body and health in such way as to him seems best and it is nothing short upon his person. But the liberty secured by the Constitution of the United States to everyone within its jurisdiction does not import an absolute right and be at all times and in all circumstances wholly freed from restraint. On any other basis, this society would not exist with safety to its members. Society based on the rule that each one is a law unto himself would soon be confronted with disorder and anarchy. Real liberty for all could not exist under the operation of a principle which recognizes the right of each individual person to use his own, whether in respect of his person or property, regardless of the injury that may be done to others. This court has more than once recognized it is a fundamental principle that persons and property are subjected to all kinds of restraints and burdens in order to secure the general comfort, health, and prosperity of the state of the perfect right of the legislature to do which no question ever was or upon acknowledged general principles ever can be made so far as natural persons are concerned." Unquote. That was a lengthy quotation from what is a lengthy case that established and 
continues to be good law to this day that states have a right to enact sweeping legislation if it serves the health of of the general citizenry. Now that may be a little bit of a surprise because we aren't used to this. We aren't used to this kind of way of life. Uh, government comes along that our mayors and our city councils and our state governors call off uh, basically all fun um, and say, you can't go into saloons or you can't go into restaurants, you can't go into, I, I said the word saloon because I just actually been reading about how the state government of Ohio responded in 1918 during the Spanish flu. The governor, at first, when cases came along, just issued a recommendation that local officials take this seriously and pronounce whatever they want on October 9th. By Thanksgiving, they had closed all schools, all churches, all restaurants, all open air and closed air meetings, and had said basically no one has the right to congregate with anyone who is not an immediate family member. And they thought that they got it. So that was basically between and Thanksgiving of 1918, they basically closed down systematically the entire state of Ohio. Uh, Governor James Cox, um, who I believe was Democrat and later on was the unsuccessful uh, uh, challenger in the 1920 federal election. Um, at first, didn't want to close everything down, and local governments closed it all down eventually. Um, he lost his nomination, uh, his, his uh, president, in part because this was a campaign issue in 1920. Uh, but, uh, but by Thanksgiving, they basically closed everything. They reopened the schools. They reopened the churches after Thanksgiving, and they thought they had stamped out the flu. But a week after reopening everything, by December 3rd, they reclosed all churches, all groceries, supermarkets, and public gatherings because the flu came roaring back. And school did not resume and normal life did not resume until after the new year, January 2nd of 1919. Which I think is just an interesting illustration of how this process worked the last time there was a highly infectious agent, uh, uh, basically operating similar principles to the corona, what I understand from my medically inclined friends. So what is the general background of the, the police power? Um, it has a, a broad historical pedigree. Keith Whittington, who's a, a professor of constitutional law at Princeton University, some of you may have heard his name before. Um, he teaches uh, jurisprudence and he's sort of a, a conservative. He wrote for Reason Magazine, which is Tarian uh, mouthpiece, the mouthpiece of the, the most uh, liberty-oriented, uh, absolute free speech, uh, no war on drugs, ethical of police in general. He wrote this this morning. Uh, this general background of police powers underwrites myriad routine restrictions that state and local governments put on social life. It's what allows local governments to authorize health inspectors to examine kitchens, it's what allows fire marshals to limit the number of people who can occupy a public venue. It is what allows police officers to arrest people for in the street. It's what allows government officials to prevent you from accumulating mounds of garbage in the backyard. It's what allows government officials to tell you that you can't keep a tiger as a pet in your house. It is what allowed states to ban freestanding billiard halls and bowling alleys as contributing to quote unquote disorder. And he gives 
a bunch of historical examples, like the state of New Hampshire. Does everyone remember New Hampshire's slogan that is on their uh, 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 state license plates? Live free or die, right? Live free or die. Well, New Hampshire authorized local health officers to, quote, remove any person infected with the smallpox, the malignant cholera, or other malignant pestilential disease to some suitable house to be by them provided for that purpose and make regulations respecting such house and for preventing unnecessary communication with such persons or their attendants as they may think proper, unquote. It's pretty broad sweeping. If you have a pestilence, we can lock you in a house. And if you don't have a house, we can build your house and lock you in it forever if we want. Uh, that's the live free or die state. Uh, Massachusetts had a similar law. Uh, it directed all town leaders, quote, when the smallpox or any other disease dangerous to the public health is found to exist in any town, unquote, to, quote, use all possible care to prevent the spreading of the infection and to give public notice of infected places to travelers by displaying red at proper distances and by all other means, which in their judgment shall be most effectual for the common safety, unquote. We've heard of red flag laws in the context of gun control lately. Um, that's actually uh, a frayed flag uh, that goes back to these public health laws that stirred into the public conversation. Uh, I see that I had a question. The original case that I quoted at length from is Jacobson versus Massachusetts. It was decided by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1905, and you can find it at the U.S. Reports 197 U.S., page 11. That's probably Jason Owen. So let's take it from the, the context of, you know, what feels like ancient history over 100 years ago with the, the Spanish flu to today. Uh, I thought that I would use the example of Ohio law uh, to show you an example of broad authority that has been given to the state uh, by the state's elected representatives when it comes to public health. And so I, I have a couple of provisions of code, but I thought that it would be um, interesting for you to hear a couple of them. On the books today, in Ohio Revised Code Section 3701.13, the Department of Health shall have supervision of all matters relating to the preservation of the life and health of the people and have ultimate authority in matters of quarantine and isolation, which it may declare and enforce when neither exists and modify, relax, or abolish when either has been established. So that is an open-ended delegation of authority from the state legislature to the Department of Health for the state, and it has ultimate authority in quarantine and isolation. That same thing that the Supreme Court in 1905 said that Massachusetts had, uh, the state of Ohio continues to exercise. Um, Ice Code 3707. 08 said when a person known to have been exposed to a communicable disease declared quarantinable by the Board of Health or a city or a general health district or the Department of Health, modern law is less elegant than uh, older law. Uh, the board shall at once restrict such person to his place of residence or other suitable place, prohibit entrance to or exit from such a place without the board's written permission in such manners to prevent effective contact with individuals not so exposed and enforce such restrictive measures prescribed by the department. 
and so I'll read to you every state and every state's public health code, but these are somewhat representative of the kinds of laws that are on the books. And I think it's important to realize that our elected representatives have enacted this. Uh, the people who voted for those elected representatives have enacted this. There is nothing explicit in the Constitution of the United States, the federal Constitution, that prevents states from doing this. Now, the original public meeting is, is one, one thing that I would emphasize is that that fearful set of axioms about dual sovereignty and the limitations on being enumerated and uh, the basically unlimited view of the state's police power, it doesn't quite hold up that way because the federal government has grown, as you know, exponentially, and the federal authority of the president is are even more vast than the police power of the states. So the, the Brennan Center for Justice, which is sort of a left-wing organization, has cataloged a series of 138 statutory powers that come online if a president declares a national state of emergency. Um, for example, the Stafford Act allows the president to declare a national emergency, and then he can order federal troops uh, out into the streets of the domestic interior of the country. Ordinarily, the president can't use federal troops, non-National Guard, uh, professional army, U.S. soil, um, without Congress's authorization, but if they declare a national emergency, that's one of the powers he arguably would be able to deploy. Section 24-7-D of that act says that if the secretary determines after consultation with such public health officials as may necessary, disease or disorder presents a public health emergency, or two, a public health emergency including significant outbreaks of infectious diseases or bioterrorist attacks otherwise exist, the secretary may take action as may be appropriate. There's basically no standard what constitutes appropriate. Um, Congress has given the Secretary of Human Service, appointed by the President, essentially carte blanche to do whatever is appropriate. Um, as another example, um, the president may suspend the operation of provisions regarding the storage, transportation, disposal, procurement, handling, testing of chemical and biological weapons, including the prohibition on testing such weapons on human subjects. Did you, the more you learn, right? That's a law. That adopted in 1969, uh, which is an interesting. Once the president declares there's a national emergency, he can issue a waiver on uh, testing what otherwise might be considered a biological weapon. So now you'll sleep better at night. Um, why do I talk about all this? I think one of the, the elements here that I want to emphasize to you is that the powers of our government at the moment are vast, um, but that's not the end of the story quite. Um, and I think I would venture a prediction that uh, for the next 15 days or so, you're unlikely to see many actions taken by uh, our public health officials, our executive officials, our governors, and our, our president uh, challenged in court. But as this crisis continues, and as the economic difficulty 
associated with the crisis continues, I think there's a higher probability that you will see some challenges in court. And so I just wanted to give you the basic contours of what it looks like to challenge a government action in court. Um, this is very general. Obviously, this was very, but I would emphasize uh, the, the point that if you assert that you have a right protected by the action that is being infringed from an action, we have this sort of revisionist, not part of the original constitutional framework, uh, sort of loathsome to lawyers, especially those of an originalist bent, uh, known as tears of scrutiny. And no, I'm not talking about crying. Um, I'm talking about tears, although they, they might be related. Uh, if you are asserting an interest in liberty, generally like the economic liberty to run your restaurant free of closing it uh, because of a public health emergency, you would then have to establish that you have that liberty and that a government action is infringing it. And then the burden shifts to prove that its infringement on your liberty serves a rational interest, a legitimate state interest, uh, and has a rational basis. This is known as rational basis review or legitimate interest review, and it essentially is toothless. At that point, if there's any conceivable rationale for why the had been imposed, usually the court will reject your if you can prove that you have a fundamental right, however, and there are some of these that written in the Constitution and there are some that seem to have been invented by the courts, uh, if you can assert a fundamental right, one example is the fundamental right to travel. You can go across state lines. The courts have said that that's a fundamental right. Another is the fundamental right of parents to direct the upbringing and education of their children. Uh, if you were to assert one of those rights, now the burden is on the government, not just a legitimate interest, but a compelling interest, an interest that is uh, supposedly overriding in its power, and the government has to prove that its infringement on that fundamental right is the least restrictive means of achieving the compelling interest. This is often referred to as narrow tailoring. Uh, it often arises in the First Amendment context when someone asserts that their right to free speech has been infringed. They will say, uh, the government has to prove that there's a compelling interest infringing my right to free speech. It is the least restrictive means. There's not another way that could achieve the same compelling interest that does not burden my right to exercise the fundamental right of free speech. So one thing that is really interesting uh, about the, this current context, most of the courts at this point have proven that they are unwilling to get involved. And I think there is something uh, very natural about that, natural in the sense of the laws of nature and of nature's God. So an example of this, and, and um, others may have more detailed information about it, but I was following with great interest last night, the saga in Ohio about the uh, primary election, the presidential and congressional other local elections that the General Assembly of Ohio had established would be held on March 17th. Well we didn't hold those elections in Ohio today. And why? Well, the governor decided that it would be on Sunday to basically all restaurants and bars uh, and non-essential uh, establishments of the church. And then on Monday, he said, I don't have the power directly call off the election, but 
and his government and the Secretary of State did not oppose a lawsuit seeking a temporary restraining order, a preliminary injunction from a state trial court in uh, Franklin County, I believe, to call off the election. And the judge said, basically, don't ask me to do this, uh, from what I can tell. He said, um, it's not up to me as a judge to call off an election established by the legislature. Some people have described what happened next as a constitutional crisis. I don't know if I would go that far to describe it that far. But from what I can tell, uh, the, the governor then turned to the public health director who invoked the statutes um, that I had just quoted from that gives broad authority. And the Department of Public Health in Ohio said, there's no way to consistent with uh, our view of health and safety carry on the election tomorrow. And then at that point, another plaintiff rushed to court and went all the way to the Ohio Supreme Court seeking uh, the judiciary to say, stop, unlawful to call off the election. The law still says that an election is going to happen. And from what I understand, four members of the Ohio Supreme Court, it's a seven member court, uh, convened and without an opinion denied the mandamus request and basically said, we're not gonna get involved on the other side and say that it was illegal to call off the election. Since say we're gonna stop the election and we wouldn't say that we're going to force the election to go forward. So courts have stepped back. And so from an illegal outlook, my expectation is uh, while information is deeply limited and while panic and fear is at its apex, courts are going to be unwilling to step in and defend uh, assertions of fundamental rights against restrictions from the government, um, provided that uh, the courts can stay out of it, they will probably try to stay out of it as long as they can. Thank you for listening to the Forge Leadership Podcast. If you like the show, drop a review in your podcast app and be sure to subscribe for all the latest updates. You can follow Forge Leadership Network at Forge Leadership Network on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. For more information about Forge programming, visit forgeleadership.org.